ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Emma Johnson, thank you for speaking. It was very, very interesting and broad. Could you tell us where we're sitting at the moment? Well, yes. Right now we're sitting in the lovely government house, but in relation to environmental conditions, we're sitting in a very difficult and dire set of circumstances. And I think the most important thing that people need to remember is that this is a twin crisis. It's a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis, and it comes on top of the background of a historical legacy of not treating our oceans and coasts very well. So there's impacts already and they're being compounded by the climate and biodiversity crises. One thing that was startling about what you said, something we know instinctively, okay, there's greater warmth and there's greater violence in the atmosphere, but you also talked about the whole of biology of coastlines and so on speeding up like crazy. That's right. So I study a lot of different mechanisms of human impacts in marine and coastal systems. And I was having one of those big picture thinking days, as you like to have as an academic. And I realised that they were all acting in concert. So they were compounding in the same way to speed up ecological systems. So the main drivers being heat. Now, heat is a mechanism that speeds up basic metabolism. So it literally speeds up how fast things grow, for example. But also when heat becomes extreme, it becomes like a heat wave and it's a disturbance. And a disturbance is anything that kills a large number of organisms in a short period of time. So you've got increasing frequency of disturbance and humans are very good at creating disturbances. We do it through pollution, we do it through construction and now there's heat increases. Then addition, we also add nutrients, organic matter to all of our coastal ecosystems. And we do this on a global scale, especially since the invention of synthetic nitrogens. Now that's like a fertilization act. So you've got disturbance, heat, nutrients, and to add to that, we have biological invasions. So 90% of global trade is by sea and we transport species on our ships between continents. The species that get through this filter are often weedy species. So they have lots and lots of offspring. They reproduce really quickly, they grow really quickly and they take up nutrients quickly and they're very hardy. So all of those four drivers act in concert to create a reinforcing cycle of weediness in our ecological systems, marine and coastal. We depend on biodiversity and one thing that you also mentioned is the way the fires, the smoke, the ash has changed not only the landscape but also the sea and also as we've found on beaches near where I live, 40,000 trees got washed up the Shoalhaven River and there were so many of them that people visiting the 7 mile, which is really actually 14 mile beach, built gigantic wigwams out of all the logs because they couldn't think of anything else to do with them. That's right. I saw those wigwams. They were across the New South Wales coast and it was absolutely extraordinary. I remember the moment that I was standing by the beach at Coogee in Sydney watching the ash, thick black ash, wash up around my feet and I thought, this is a first. I have never seen this before. And it must be impacting our coastal ecosystems in a way that had never been documented before. And sure enough, there is no literature on this in the environmental studies. So what we found, I pivoted the research team in between the bushfires, the floods that followed and the lockdown of COVID. The team went out and sampled all these estuaries, those that had been burnt, those that hadn't been burnt, their catchments. And we looked at these 
ecosystems to see if anything had changed. And sure enough, the first published studies of the impacts of bushfires on marine estuarine basins, where the contaminant load, the pyrogenic carbon load, and the whole consequence of that on the biology are documented for the first time. One of the examples you gave which was startling was the ways in which in Antarctica, you even went down there, and when the ice is removed, the sun gets through, and you've got great increase in biological activity down there, changing all the creatures, the plants and so on. But just to take you one example of good news that you gave is there is improvement in marine protected areas, especially where there's a link between the community and institutions with some sort of scientific base. How much of that is going on and is it easy to make that kind of conjunction? Yes, so what we've found in coastal ecosystems around Australia, and this is on the basis of a huge number of social surveys and ecological surveys combined together, is that when we get really good institutional policies that are protecting ecosystems, local communities respond. They value those ecosystems more, they do their own stewardship and protect them, and then there's a positive biodiversity response. So larger fish, more species richness of fish. So this is an example of fully protected marine parks, quite small sometimes, working very effectively. When we get partially protected areas or fully open areas, we don't see those benefits, either the biodiversity benefits or the social values benefits. So that's an area where we've got alignment between policy and practice and people and place, and it's all working in a virtuous circle. When you talk about places like Antarctica, where there's no local coastal community, the big question remains, how do we protect remote areas where people aren't directly engaged in stewardship? And I think Antarctica is a fantastic example of how it can work because Australians love Antarctica. They are deeply connected to it and they value Antarctica and they value it as a wild, pristine place that should be protected. And the institutional arrangements do protect Antarctica at the moment. The question is, will these values and this willingness to conserve Antarctica withstand the massive global changes that are happening? Right now, sea ice extent around Antarctica is the lowest that has ever been observed by a very, very large margin. So the ice shelves are melting and the sea ice is melting and we will see dramatic changes in the ecology. We do stand to lose a lot of beautiful species and communities that I've dived on personally that are incredibly unique, under five or six metres of ice and in minus 1.85 degrees Celsius temperatures. It's, it's hard work, but it's worth it. You see these gigantic sponges as tall as me. You see anemones the size of dinner tables. And these are slow communities that have never been disturbed and they've just been sitting there quietly growing and, and shivering probably for many, many decades. They will be transformed by the sea ice being removed and outcompeted by algae as the light resource comes in. So another example of the speeding up of marine ecosystems. And finally, you have also written with colleagues and Indigenous colleagues, this time the State of the Environment Report for Australia. Now, you give seven ways in which we can help. I won't summarise them. I'm not asking you to. But where can people look it up to see those seven points of future action? 
So Australia's State of Environment report is entirely online and it's very accessible and searchable and there are chapters on absolutely anything you might want to know about. If you want to know about Antarctica or you want to know about our inland rivers or you want to know about our biodiversity and it's all searchable so I really strongly encourage you to just look up Australian State of Environment report 2021 and you will find everything you need to find. But within this report for the very first time we not only had incredible Indigenous experts as co-authors on almost all of the chapters but also their very own fully Indigenous authored chapter but we also attempted and this very much was spawned out of our work collaborating between scientific experts and Indigenous experts in reconnecting people with country and reconnecting people with the well-being that depends on environmental conditions. So you'll see for the first time well-being assessments in this report where we say this is the state of environment and this is what it means for you. And I think it's really important that people engage with this report, they understand it and they use it to make decisions about how we should move forward as we face this twin climate biodiversity crisis. Thank you very much and congratulations and I think the Governor would like to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Emma Johnston is Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Sydney, giving the talk on ideas for the Royal Society at Government House. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.